What's this? What's this? No, seriously, what's this? I ordered guacamole burrito bowl and there is none. Hello, and welcome to a new October episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. Just a week ago, we covered the Disney Halloween classic, Hocus Pocus. So, naturally, today, we are going to discuss the other Disney Halloween classic, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. The Nightmare Before Christmas was another extremely popular film for the show, and I'm excited to revisit it. So excited, in fact, that I went out and purchased a 4K copy from my local Best Buy. Which, to that point, here's a quick PSA for everyone. It has been announced that Best Buy in 2024 will no longer sell DVDs, Blu-rays, or 4K movies. Possibly even physical video games. So if you're a movie collector like I am, get all the steelbooks and films you can while they're still around. I know this movie is on Disney+, Plus, but I still have never owned it, and I wanted to have a physical copy of it before the digital apocalypse claims all media. So if you can... Let's please support the preservation of films, video games, and digital arts and buy physical copies of these movies while you still can. But with that being said, let's get back to our episode and talk about Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Is it a Halloween movie? Is it a Christmas movie? Let's go on an adventure with our pumpkin king, Jack Skellington, to find out. Alright, so in The Nightmare Before Christmas, Jack Skellington, King of Halloween Town, discovers Christmas Town, but in his attempts to bring Christmas to his home, causes confusion. The Nightmare Before Christmas is directed by Henry Selleck, not Tim Burton. <laughs> Henry Selleck is known for Coraline, James and the Giant Peach, and of course, The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's written by Tim Burton, Michael McDowell, and Caroline Thompson. And it stars Danny Elfman as the singing voice of Jack Skellington, Chris Sarandon as the speaking voice of Jack Skellington, Catherine O'Hara as Sally, Ken Page as Oogie Boogie, and Paul Rubens as Locke, the late great Paul Rubens. So last week we spoke about the cult status that Hocus Pocus has received, but I'd argue that the Nightmare Before Christmas's following is far more spread out and impactful. Every goth, emo, Disney princess, and high school girl were obsessed with Jack Skellington and Sally. <laughs> and it seems like Hot Topic is stocked up all year round with nightmare merchandise, from hoodies and pop figurines to jewelry and piercings. And to add to all that, twice a year, the Disney theme parks transform their Haunted Mansion attraction to feature Jack Sally, Locks, Shock, and Barrel, and the residents of Halloween Town. The ride replaces iconic Haunted Mansion themes like Otherworldly Concerto and Grim Grinning Ghosts with This is Halloween, Kidnap the Santa Claus, Making Christmas, and a mashup of What's This. Last weekend was the first time I ever rode on the holiday special of the Haunted Mansion, and it was a total blast. The uh, subtle callbacks to the film and the blending of the two Disney properties was really cool, I didn't think I needed this kind of mashup, but it was pretty sick, man. I, I thought it was just all decorations and set design, but when you go on the ride, it actually feels like they're telling the story of The Nightmare Before Christmas 
in the Haunted Mansion, which is really sick. And I definitely want to go back next year, especially around Halloween time again. There's a certain spirit to The Nightmare Before Christmas that is so unique and fun. It's crazy because The Nightmare Before Christmas wasn't really a holiday classic for my household like it is for most people. When I had my opportunity to watch it, I would, granted. But it wasn't one of those like, oh, it's Halloween, we have to watch it. I think my family gravitated more towards watching Hocus Pocus, Casper, and Halloween Town and some other Halloween movies before it came to this movie in particular. So I didn't watch it as many times as some people did when they grew up with this movie. Which kind of gives me an advantage here in this review. I can watch this with a new set of eyes and appreciate it a little bit more for what it is because I didn't grow up with those fond nostalgia glasses on. And oddly enough, a good chunk of my exposure to Jack Skellington and Halloween Town didn't come from the movie when I was a kid. A lot of it came from the Kingdom Hearts video game series. I love those video games, guys. Like, Kingdom Hearts is the shit. I'm not a big Final Fantasy fan either, but Kingdom Hearts struck that core with me. It came out around the time I was in, like, middle school and high school, and I played through those games crazily. It was Disney, it was Final Fantasy, it was challenging, it was fun, the story was convoluted as fuck, but goddamn did I love those video games. <laughs> and I didn't just stop with like Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, I played every iteration of the franchise on the PlayStation 2, the PlayStation 4, the Vita, the PSP, the Nintendo 3DS, and when they remastered everything for the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox, I bought them again on those platforms. The Nightmare Before Christmas is playable on Kingdom Hearts 1 and Kingdom Hearts 2. It allows the player to experience both Halloween Town and Christmas Town. The games feature Jack Skellington as a combat companion, and the original soundtrack and enemies are based on the source material, so it does give that authentic Nightmare Before Christmas vibe when you're playing through the worlds. When I tell you that I love these games, I really mean it. I beat each one on proud difficulty, and I did it multiple times, especially when the remasters came out. The one thing I love about the games is they do a good job of condensing these Disney stories into a small two-hour sprawl full of Easter eggs and references. It does contain spoilers for the most part and captures the essence of the movies, while remaining uniquely Kingdom Hearts 2 and blending in that Final Fantasy vibe. And because the video games were very well made, most of my reverence for Nightmare was predicated on the hours I spent fighting Oogie Boogie and exploring Halloween Town. And it begged the question, does the Kingdom Hearts adaptation of The Nightmare Before Christmas compare to the film, and does it do it justice? Let's hop in the sleigh and let Zero lead us into my review. <laughs> So, <laughs> I learned something about myself a couple years ago, and this is one small thing that I've never told anyone and just something that only my closest friends know about me. And that small thing you may not know about me is that I really like musical films. <laughs> I I'm ashamed to admit it, but I do. I, I do like musical films. I never actually realized this until I went to go watch La La Land back in like 2016. Others like The Greatest Showman, West Side Story, and especially Sing Street all really brought up my, my love for musicals. I don't know if I'd go to a Broadway musical per se, maybe if I'm in New York or something, but I do like musical films. 
and especially Sing Street. That movie is amazing. If you've never seen Sing Street, go out and watch it. It's on Netflix. It's a fantastic two-hour film. But let's get back to Nightmare. (laughs) So The Nightmare Before Christmas is first and foremost a musical. And I gotta say, they are catchy, iconic, and spectacular musical numbers in this film. Right from the opening narration, we are led into the ever-enduring This Is Halloween song. If you've played the Kingdom Hearts video games, you know how tough those games can be. So you're going to be spending hours on end listening repeatedly to This Is Halloween while you're trying to overcome a boss or puzzle. (laughs) It did get a little irritating to listen to it after a while, but fortunately, after all this time, I still love This Is Halloween so much. It sets the stage for our stop-motion animated claymation feature by showing us the many different personalities and characteristics of the holiday-laden city of Halloween Town. The animation of this movie is stunning. Every second on screen is beautifully shot, it's well animated, and done with precise planning and execution. Even simple shots that include some gross-out humor like rats being turned into hats, a dead turtle losing its head, Dr. Finkelstein itching his brain, and what I didn't know is that there was a shot where Jack Skellington has to open up a doorknob, which was the hardest shot to film in the entire film. Things of that nature, they come off as endearing and adorable because of how much work had to go into planning and executing these shots. This movie is peak Tim Burton. The morbid humor and style fit the Halloween Town aesthetic perfectly. The movie oozes spooky season and it has visually stayed the test of time. It holds up so well and I love it. I also want to take the time to mention not just the musical numbers, but the voice acting. I never knew this about the film, but there are two separate people playing Jack Skellington in this movie that I didn't know about until I did the research here. Now, obviously, Danny Elfman is the composer of the entire film, but did you know that he did the singing numbers for Jack? Unfortunately, they found that his speaking aspect of the voice role was not up to snuff, so they had to go out and get a secondary actor to come in and play Jack Skellington when he's doing his speaking roles. But Danny Elfman actually did the singing for Jack Skellington in this movie. As for the speaking role, they gave it to actor Chris Sarandon, who doesn't really have a lot of notable mentions on his IMDb, but he is an Academy Award-nominated actor who got his nomination as Best Supporting Actor for Dog Day Afternoon. And it's a testament of how closely each person sounded to one another that their two performances blend together beautifully. Most people, like myself, never would have thought that Jack was played by two different actors, but they've done a great job here of giving him enough personality on both his singing side and his speaking side to make Jack such an endearing and iconic character. Many of the lyrical numbers showcase the wide talent that Danny Elfman has. If you don't know, Danny Elfman was the frontman for Oingo Boingo back in the 80s, so it's only natural that he does the singing here. Jack's singing voice is a combination of falsetto and soprano, making him appear welcoming and curious throughout the picture, especially when he's discovering the meaning of Christmas. Originally, Danny Elfman was supposed to do both the speaking role and the singing role for Jack, but director Henry Selleck wanted Sarandon to be the leading star. 
Elfman nearly walked off the project, but fortunately, Sarandon wasn't much of a singer, so Elfman kept his voice talents in the picture, along with his accompaniment. From a technical level, I can see why The Nightmare Before Christmas is so beloved. It harkens back to a time in the 1990s when animation filmmaking was beginning to take on a more serious role in films, and animated films were starting to get serious consideration for awards season. Just two years after The Nightmare Before Christmas was nominated for an Oscar for Best Visual Effects, Disney's The Lion King was nominated for Best Picture at the 1995 Academy Awards. Disney, at this point in time, was really hitting their strides. The 1990s were peak Disney. And this movie is a testament to how strong the studio was back then. So let's now divert our attention back onto the story of the film. Jack Skellington has been eternally granted the title of Pumpkin King. With the crown, Jack's in charge of organizing the annual Halloween celebration. In many ways, because the city is based around the holiday all year round, it makes Jack the unofficial leader of the town, even bypassing the mayor in some aspects. Jack is beloved by almost all the inhabitants of Halloween Town, including the reclusive and oppressed Sally. Sally's admiration for Jack is romantic and awe-inspiring, despite the fact that she doesn't really speak to him personally until much later in the film. Ultimately, Jack becomes exhausted and bored of the annual Halloween tradition, so he walks into the woods and stumbles upon the entrances to other holiday worlds. These worlds include Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, Easter, Thanksgiving, Halloween of course, and Christmas. Some people will argue that you could see a firework door, which I believe is intended to be the 4th of July, but I couldn't confirm. I might have to go back and scrub through the footage to find that. Jack enters the Christmas Town doorway to discover the luminant, cheery spectacle that is the season of spirit, Christmas. Here's another standout moment in the film, and it's a reason why I led the whole episode off with this bit. The musical number, What's This?, plays when he stumbles upon Christmas. Jack learns about elves, snowmen, the tradition of gifting, and Santa Claus, who he then refers to as Sandy Claus. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. It's inspiring, it's hopeful, it's joyous. Jack's nativity towards Christmas is so beautiful and wonderful to see on screen. Seeing him bounce around the entire town, looking through windows, checking on what the elves are doing, even mimicking a snowman at one point. It's beautiful. It's fun. It's one of the iconic moments and the reason why people love this movie. I think this musical number alone is why so many people debate that this is a Christmas movie rather than a Halloween movie. You really do feel the sense of wonder with Christmas Town. Christmas inspires Jack to return to Halloween Town in order to clash the two holidays together into one big spectacle. For this Christmas, Jack wants to replace all the toys and presents for children with the morbid, haunting remnants of Halloween, and most importantly, kidnap Sandy Claus and take his place among the Christmas sleigh. Knowing this is a bad idea, Sally tries to reason with Jack into not following through with his plan explaining that she has a vision of the catastrophe it will bring to children all over the world and for themselves. But Jack doesn't listen, and this will be a pain point for later in the podcast. 
Jack's nativity is admirable, it's misplaced, and incredibly unfortunate. In attempting to do something for himself to lift up his own personal spirits about Halloween, he takes on the role of kind of an antagonist and screws everything up. He goes to three little shitheads by the name of Lock, Shock, and Barrel to kidnap the Sandy Claus, to which they end up attempting to feed Santa Claus to the town pariah Oogie Boogie. A couple things. I really liked the Kidnap the Sandy Claus performance. The tune is really catchy and devious. It's creepy in the sense that the intent of the song is to provide context to what the three kids are planning to do. And they sing it with such innocence and also such malice and evil. (laughs) If you've played Kingdom Hearts, you know these three little kids are shitheads. I hated these kids. They are a tough fight in the video game, by the way. That then leads us to the next big character introduction of the film. We have Oogie Boogie. As the main antagonist of the film, Oogie is very memorable, he's charismatic, and he's fun to watch on screen. He's given his own musical number, to which it gives off this fun Louisiana gambler's vibe. And although Oogie is barely introduced in the film towards the final 30 minutes of runtime, he leaves his mark on Disney lore. He's featured every Halloween at Disney theme parks, even getting his own parade and fireworks spectacular. Major kudos goes to Ken Page, the actor who took on the role of Oogie Boogie with such little screen time, he breathed so much life into him. Oogie is a huge standout in the movie for me, and once again, he was another pain in the ass to beat in Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> so this is the part of the review where I might lose a few people. Sally. We need to talk about Sally's role in this film. It has two effects. One, she acts as a surrogate for young female audiences as a person who feels trapped, unseen, and longing for connection. She's incredibly intelligent and quick-thinking. She's willing to do anything to get out of the bad situation that she's placed in, including poisoning her creator, Dr. Finkelstein, ripping off her own limbs, and provocatively distracting Oogie Boogie to get Santa to safety. Santa says to her at the conclusion of the film that she's the only person making sense in this insane asylum. And it's true, though. Sally's virtuous and pure-hearted nature makes her different from everyone else in Halloween Town. She genuinely cares for Jack, and she cares about Halloween Town. But she is trapped by Dr. Finkelstein's antagonistic behavior. I fully understand why so many women relate to Sally in this film. She overcomes a lot of adversity and toxic male relationships that she is forced into. However, the other effect that Sally has on the film is a bit negative. And it is really one of the only major gripes I have with the film in general. Sally's love and good nature is not reciprocated by Jack until the final minutes of the film. The two protagonists share so little screen time together that I don't fully buy into their romance. This is a very controversial take, I know, because everyone loves to speculate about Jack and Sally. They are the two iconic figures of this film. When people think about this movie, they think about the shot of Jack and Sally on the hill in front of the moonlight embracing one another. But granted, I am looking at this film in a 2023 perspective, where every female protagonist is a take-no-shit independent warrior that doesn't need a man in her life. But I couldn't help but feel like Jack didn't necessarily deserve Sally in this film. 
Jack's fun, he's charismatic, and he's a great character, don't get me wrong, but his short-sighted nature and selfish actions really deter from the romantic connection that the two had at the end of this film. I think if they were given more screen time together, maybe they could have fleshed out their relationship a little bit more. Because at no point did I feel like Sally and Jack had some kind of sexual relationship or romantic chemistry. It's mostly one person, Sally, crushing on the other until they finally wise up to what's in front of them. Like I said, this may be a controversial take on my behalf, but I think a little bit more time between the two characters would have gone a long way into making us buy into their love. I definitely would have wanted to see Sally enter Christmas Town and see what her reaction would have been like to seeing the holiday spirits of Christmas. To my surprise, also, this movie gets incredibly dark towards the end. In the third act, Jack has a funny bit where he's replaced the world's Christmas presents with decapitated heads and morbid curiosities from Halloween Town, but shortly after the city's awake to the chaos and panic, the military is then called upon to shoot Jack and Zero from the sky for basically terrorizing the world. <laughs> Jack and Zero are actually terrorists now that I think about it. Um, now I know the stakes aren't that high, considering Jack is already dead and all, but the visual of seeing him and Zero fall from the atmosphere could be emotionally damaging for kids. I think... I was kind of terrified of this scene when I was a kid, too. I was scared for Zero especially, because I love Zero. Everyone loves Zero. He's fucking adorable. <laughs> this was one of those scenes where it truly felt like we were watching a Tim Burton movie. Tim Burton really does do dark humor and dark scenes really well, and this was probably the bleakest moment in the entire film. Do I think that Jack is fully redeemed by the film's end? Yes, although I still don't really buy into his romantic relationship with Sally. I do buy into his character's journey of being selfless. You know, he saves Santa from Oogie Boogie, he restores Christmas, and then he learns to appreciate that Halloween and Christmas, they can both coexist without interfering with one another. Jack deserves his spot on the pantheon of iconic Disney characters, and I think this film lives up to its enormous reputation. Like last week, I don't feel like I'm in the mindset to give this movie a score because I do enjoy it so much, although there are minor nitpicks on it. So I'm just going to say that I highly enjoy and endorse that you all should take the time to make The Nightmare Before Christmas an annual holiday tradition in your household. This is a timeless classic and one you should have in your collection. There's one question that remains, though, that we haven't answered yet. Is this movie a Halloween movie or is it a Christmas movie? I don't want to take the cheese ball answer and say both. That's a cheap fallacy that leaves everyone with an underwhelming answer. I can definitely say, after watching The Nightmare Before Christmas in 2023, that this film is a Halloween movie. Controversial, I know, but I want to explain a little bit. Let me pose this question to you. What's the main purpose of Jack's journey? Is it to become Santa Claus? No. It's to rekindle his love and appreciation for the Halloween season and his title of Pumpkin King. He may dip his toes into the Christmas spirit, even pretending to be Santa Claus on Christmas night, but he fails at it. 
it results in him becoming a better person suited to take on the leadership of Halloween Town. He discovers how unnatural it can be to clash the two holidays together. The other reason I say that this is solely a Halloween film is the direction and the style of the movie. This isn't your typical Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty the Snowman, Rankin and Bass television special. It has some extremely horrifying and creepy visual aesthetics here. Christmas only serves as a plot device. It's not the heart of the movie itself. The heart of the movie is Jack getting back to loving Halloween. I don't believe this is the kind of movie a stereotypical household can throw on during Christmas Eve when the in-laws are visiting for the holidays. You'd want to savor that moment with your in-laws to watch movies like It's a Wonderful Life or something appropriate for your religious beliefs like The Ten Commandments or The Little Drummer Boy, things of that nature, or those Rankin and Bass television specials. It's not. This isn't to discredit it as a Christmas movie per se, because you can still watch this movie on Christmas. Every family can celebrate the holiday differently, don't get me wrong. But if you were to buckle down and critique this film for its Christmas holiday spirit, it does not hit the bar. This is a Halloween movie featuring Christmas. So leave me all your nasty comments on YouTube or social media. I'm curious what you all have to say about this movie and its interpretation as a Christmas or Halloween film. Before I recorded this episode, I posted on my social media page to get your guys' insight before I wrap this uh, episode up. So here are a couple comments that I received from listeners and good friends of the show. Let's start with Mike V, who wrote, I think of it more as a Christmas movie. I believe when Tim Burton said his inspiration for this movie was watching the Halloween decorations being replaced with Christmas ones at the mall. Also, the movie takes place after Halloween and during Christmas time. Mike, you're in fact correct. And I was actually going to bring this up as one of my filmmaking factoids for the day, but this is the perfect time to, to talk about it. You are correct. Tim Burton did say that the original poem that the movie was based on was inspired after seeing Halloween merchandise being taken down and replaced by Christmas. The juxtaposition of ghouls and goblins with Santa and his reindeers sparked his imagination. And in that sense, yes, I agree with you. Tim Burton wanting to make this film because of the Christmas decorations is really nice. However, let's take a look on the flip side. We have Jose F., another friend of the show, who tends to agree with my argument. Jose writes, I'd say it's a Halloween movie, strictly from the character's point. While they do imbue the Christmas spirit, at the end of the day, Halloween is what they know. The ideas, gifts, and overall vibe are all in the spirit of Halloween, masked by a thin Christmas sheet. The end of the movie, even them understanding Christmas, is them looking forward to a bigger, greater Halloween, and it solidifies it as a Halloween movie. Well said, Jose, and I'm glad someone agrees with me. (laughs) On top of asking you, the listeners, what this movie clarifies as... I also put up a poll on Twitter and Instagram, and on the polls I put up last night, people on Instagram pivoted greatly towards Halloween, with 88% of the poll voting towards the spooky season. And another big example of the dichotomy of this movie, on Twitter, 66% of the voters decided this is a Christmas movie. So you have 88% on Instagram that say it's a Halloween movie, 
66% that say it's a Christmas movie. Talk about a split decision. <laughs> but I think more people gravitate towards this movie for being a Halloween movie. And people are really torn up to call it what it is. <laughs> now, one thing I did do on the poll, I didn't want to put a both option on there. People love to watch this movie on both occasions, and I don't blame them. But I wanted to see what the results would have been if I just made it a binary system. I'm curious what you guys have to say. So if this is your first time getting in on the discussion, make sure you let me know in the comments on the YouTube page or on social media. Let's now continue along to the final act of the podcast episode, and that is our filmmaking factoids. We are now in the home stretch, and with this final act of the episode, I want to break down the critical and audience reception, then finish off with our filmmaking factoids. As it currently stands, The Nightmare Before Christmas is one of our highest rated films on the show so far. Nightmare scores with critics at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, with the critic consensus being, The Nightmare Before Christmas is a stunningly original and visually delightful work of stop-motion animation. And audiences widely agree. With over 250,000 audience reviews, The Nightmare Before Christmas is holding 92% with viewers as well. This is truly a beloved Disney classic film. Now, however, a tradition I started a couple weeks ago with my Hereditary review, someone called that film Butt Cheeks in the review comments. So I want to give an opposite perspective on the critical appraisal of this film. Here's a small segment of the show where I pull zero to one star reviews of The Nightmare Before Christmas. One thing I didn't want to touch on during my review is the pushback from religious groups about the characterization of Christmas in the film. That is evident by Patty M., who writes, As a Christian, I cannot recommend this film. While it is a great cinematic movie, I cannot speak favorably about the movie. Uh, zero and a half stars. <laughs> I like this one. This person wanted to chime in on the Christmas-Halloween debate. Samuel L., not Samuel L. Jackson, <laughs> says, quote, Not my cup of tea. Good ending and idea. Halloween film as well, not a Christmas one. One star. <laughs> I'm glad you chimed in, man. And the last one of the day, Nancy reviews Nightmare with a one star rating and says, Not suitable for four or five year olds. Walked out, unfortunately. Now, although it's great to see a person warn other parents, you'd think the walked out attitude would not qualify you as a liable reviewer. Just my thoughts. <laughs> I love reading these reviews every week. It really is a kick to see how some people interpret and unabashedly hate on a film for no good reason sometimes. And we're going to for sure do this next week when I review Five Nights at Freddy's. I also want to mention this week was particularly hard because there's not a lot of one or zero and a half star reviews of this film. That's a testament to how good this movie is, by the way. So let's get on to our final feature of the show. This is our filmmaking factoids. In 2001, Walt Disney Pictures began to consider producing a sequel, but rather than using stop motion, Disney wanted to use computer animation. Tim Burton stepped in and said, nah, -uh. <laughs> he convinced Disney to drop the idea. 
His quote in particular says, I was always very protective of Nightmare, not to do sequels or things of that kind. Burton explained, you know, Jack visits Thanksgiving World or other kinds of those things just because I felt the movie had a purity to it and the people that like it. Good on him for standing his ground. This movie is much better because it's standalone and it didn't need a sequel. However, seeing Halloween and Easter would have been kind of fun. (laughs) Here's another one. Danny Elfman found writing Nightmare's 10 songs as one of the easiest jobs I've ever had. I had a lot in common with Jack Skellington. Having created demos of all the songs in the movie for the director's approval, Elfman had gotten really attached to Jack. Since he could relate to being loved and famous as he was the lead singer of his band Oingo Boingo, but like Jack, he was no longer happy with the situation. Elfman mustered up all his courage to ask his friend and producer Tim Burton if he could voice Jack, but before he could finish, Burton simply told him, Danny, don't worry about it, you've got the part. And that's how Danny Elfman became the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Some of the presents Jack delivers to the kids are nods to Tim Burton's films, The snake looks like a sandworm from Beetlejuice, and the shrunken head is from the afterlife waiting room in that same film. So two Beetlejuice references there. The cat and the duck are both featured in Batman Returns. The cat is a mascot for Shrek's department store, and the duck resembles the vehicle that's driven by the penguin towards the end of the film. It took a group of 100 people three years to complete this movie. For one second of film, up to 12 stop-motion moves had to be made. We talked a lot about the craftsmanship and the beauty of this film, but the amount of work that went into making this film, and to hear that over 100 people had to work on just the claymation aspect of it itself, it's phenomenal. I love this movie because of how much work went into it, and kudos to the cast and crew. The next factoid I have is in the scenes with the street band, especially inside the town hall, there's a small man inside of a base that is based on Danny Elfman. Rewind that shot and check it out for yourself. It's kind of funny. (laughs) There's something of a controversy over exactly who has the rights to call the story and film their own. At the top of the episode, I called this Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. However, Henry Selleck is the director and spent more time on the set and production than Tim Burton did. Burton has often claimed he is the owner of the story and it was all his idea. He wrote the original poem and most of the script. He created the characters, served as a producer, and even wanted to direct, but was simply too busy at the time to do so. Popular culture has long accepted this film as Burton's, as the film is headed as Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. But Burton does reinforce the fact that Selleck directed the film and is often annoyed that people don't remember Selleck for that. It's a joint project between Henry Selleck and Tim Burton. Now for my final factoid of the day. Originally, in the movie, Oogie Boogie was going to be revealed to be disguised as Finkelstein. Finkelstein, upon defeat, would admit that he was doing this because he was jealous that Sally had chosen Jack over him. This hints that Sally might have originally but more of a love interest of Finkelstein's rather than a daughter. This ending was changed as it came out of nowhere with a serious lack of any setup. Producer Tim Burton hated the idea so much that he kicked a hole in the wall after hearing it. 
The hole was later cut out and framed by the crew and given to Tim. When screenwriter Caroline Thompson later suggested that she could still write a better ending, Burton reportedly lost it and went into a screaming fit. So the matter wasn't addressed again. (laughs) And there we have it, folks. We are done with The Nightmare Before Christmas. Thank you to everyone who suggested this film for the month of October. It was an excellent rewatch, and I've grown more fond of this movie because of it. I hope you all enjoyed my review of it as well. If you did, make sure to leave a comment below on the YouTube channel while dropping a like and subscribe. Add the podcast to your weekly workout by following the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or even both. You can follow the show on social media with the handle PCWithGill on both Instagram and Twitter, or X if you want to call it that. Next week, we will take the night shift with Five Nights at Freddy's to finish off our October Halloween extravaganza. Thank you for listening. I'm Gil, and as always, go catch a movie.